when I was 15, just to skip over a little bit. So seven years after I came, I was applying for college when I learned I was undocumented. Um, and that was quite the surprise, especially having been brought over by the United States. It meant that I couldn't get a driver's license. I couldn't apply for college. It was, I, I felt like I was walking on eggshells all the time. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast, Walk, Talk, Listen. And like always, I'm so delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Uh, Yasmin, can you please go ahead? Sure. Hi, Yasmin Mustafa, CEO and co-founder of Work for Good. We are a workplace staff safety company protecting at-risk and vulnerable workers. Very happy to be here. Great. And yeah, um, Yasmin, I, for me, really your, your, your story... You know how you came from uh, Kuwait, um, you know, with a Palestine background, came to the U.S., and then started. You know, ultimately, you know, uh, your own companies because you have had several, right? Uh, could you maybe walk us through that? Yeah, and no, I'll do very brief. It's, mm-hmm. it's no accident. My my company is focused on safety, and I would say it's it's really because of my background and, mm-hmm. and not having safety since since I grew up. So my parents are Palestinian. They mm-hmm. they moved to Kuwait to raise us because they wanted to get away from all the unrest that was going on over there. I was born in Kuwait with four of my siblings. In the summer of 1990, my parents visited Philly. My mom was six months pregnant. It ended up being longer than they anticipated. They had my baby brother. And when they went back to Kuwait, Saddam invaded the country for its oil. This is the summer of 1990. And a few a few weeks later, we were in a bomb shelter when uh, two U.S. ambassadors burst through the shelter looking for him, looking mm-hmm. to bring him back here for his safety. And thus, um, we all migrated to the United States as refugees on September 21st, 1990. So my, we came over when I was eight years old, had to, to really learn the language, didn't have any networks, really had to start all over again, especially for my dad, who was a provider for the family. He couldn't work as a mechanical engineer because his degree didn't transfer over, which really forced us to go down a, a different path. We ended up purchasing a 7-Eleven convenience store, which became a family business. And, uh, and that's, what, that's how we started. When I was 15, just to skip over a little bit, so seven years after I came, I was applying for college when I learned I was undocumented. Um, And that was quite the surprise, especially having been brought over by the United States. It meant that I couldn't get a driver's license. I couldn't apply for college. It was, I I felt like I was walking on eggshells all the time because I didn't want anyone to know my secret. And unfortunately, the clock had restarted. So the previous years I had been in the country didn't count. 
Um, after high school, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. We ended up selling the family business. And just one day, my dad just left. He took two bags, um, went to the bank, um, took all the savings out, the family savings, and went to Jordan to be with his family, leaving us with, with really nothing. Um, so another, another point of feeling unstable and unsafe, especially financially. And my family and I had to work under the table. Uh, I worked under the table for a decade, mostly in the hospitality industry, uh, in very unsafe working conditions. My bosses knew I was undocumented because I was getting paid cash under the table and they took advantage of it. Um, I was making $5 an hour for a very long time. And so I was underpaid. I really didn't have a voice, any power, a lot of sexual harassment, unfortunately, in the, especially in the kitchens. And I just remember during those experiences thinking to myself, all right, one day I'll get my citizenship and one day I'll be my own boss. This is, this is not right. And then things did turn around when I was 25. I got my green card. Um, I started a my first company. It was a blog advertising company, helping bloggers monetize their, their content. Um, my advisor ended up buying it for a very small nominal fund um, um, uh, price, uh, but that was amazing for me. Uh, and then I became a United States citizen at age 30. Um, yeah, on April 12th um, or April 19th, 2012. And that was a, a really pivotal day for me. It's a day I celebrate every year because it was really the first time I really felt like a human being, um, that I belonged, that I had a voice, a platform, that I had power, that I was unshackled from my circumstances. And, and more importantly, I was safe. I, I couldn't be deported. I couldn't be sent back to a country I no longer felt any affinity to. And I didn't have to live with the secret anymore. And so to celebrate, I got my passport. I, I registered to vote first, but I got my passport. And then I decided to go on a six-month trek around South America by myself. And amazing experience. This was the summer of 2013. I actually just hung up the, sh the photos from that trip. I went to Ecuador and I did, I did full Spanish immersion for a month, uh, and then I went to Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, again, one month each, really eye-opening experience. And uh, one of the things that happened, which actually led to my current company, Roar, is everywhere I went, I would just meet people who would share stories of times they've been attacked or harassed or abused. And a week after I came back to Philly, this was in November of 2013, my neighbor that lived in the same building was attacked a block um, a block away from from um, from our apartment building, and she was brutally assaulted, raped. And when I read that news story, that was when the inspiration for Roar for Good was born. I think it was really a continuation of just my my life experience, but that was the catalyst. And initially, the idea was a personal safety device company. We wanted to combine self defense tools with wearable technology design something for women by women, which had never been done before. The self-defense industry has always been created by men. And, um, and that's what we did for the first four years of the company. We made this wearable a pendant that you could wear anywhere you wanted. And if you needed help or you wanted someone to watch over you, 
you would push a button. There were options to press an alarm, notify your loved ones of where you are, call 911, depending on the situation. And three years ago, we decided to switch from business to consumer company to a business to business company focusing on hospitality, really for two reasons. One is just, unfortunately, our business model was not sustainable. And two is the engagement um, and the impact wasn't there. We learned that we as human beings don't really think about prevention until something already happens, uh, which was a very hard challenge to overcome. And, And so business to business, moving, pivoting in that direction solved for those problems. And more importantly, it actually shifted the financial burden from the consumer to the business. And now we service uh, the hospitality industry, soon to be healthcare in the next two weeks. And what we do is we provide them with an indoor location tracking emergency system. So we give the employee employees panic buttons. If anything happens, they press it, we triangulate their location, send it to security and other staff so they can expedite the response time and get them help as soon as possible. Wow. That's an, an amazing story, um, Jasmine, and trying to understand more about the device. How do they wear it? Uh, how do you need to wear it? Sure, yeah. And so the originally mm-hmm. the device that we manufactured and designed was a pendant that had a magnetic clasp and it was worn on, it could be your clothes, your bag, um, wherever. It was hands-free, mm-hmm. so you could put it anywhere you wanted. Currently, um, the new device, the one that we are using for hospitality, is a is um, uh, also hands-free. It's, it's square. It's about the size of a quarter and you wear it around your neck. And it has a recess button and you press and hold the button down for three mm. seconds to activate it. And what happens then is we have beacons installed throughout the hotel. The beacons identify the location. So if I press the device and I'm in room 409, the beacon that's in room 409 will signal that I'm in room 409 and then send push notifications um, or an alert to an iPad that's usually at the security mm. officer front desk. That will also sound an an alarm to make sure that someone can go immediately to that location. It will update in real time if if I moved from room 409 to like 407, let's say. And anyone who responds usually has a universal key card. So they can make sure they can get into any place and, and help someone immediately. Yeah, I mean, you know, another thought that comes to mind, of course, it's terrible that we need such a device, right? So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, when we first started, we had a a social impact mission Mm -hmm. when we were a BDC company where for every... we 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 wanted to be able to go... We we didn't want to be able Mm -hmm. to have to exist. So what we did is we... Um, so we had, we, we thought of our safety wearables, we called it Athena at the time, our, our device. It was the, after the Greek goddess of wisdom, power, and justice. The idea was that that was a short-term solution to a much bigger problem. And uh, the bigger problem was violence against women and yeah. what led to violence against women, which unfortunately is, is, is power. 
and um, and I talked to a lot of researchers at the beginning of the company to learn about you know how do you solve this problem and. One of the pillars I heard through the sexual assault counselors, domestic violence workers, and everyone that I spoke to is <laughs> lack of empathy. If you teach empathy, especially at a young age, there is a direct impact in reducing violence against women. And so the long-term um, solution we had was for every device that we sold, we actually took 10% of the profit and invested it in organizations, nonprofits that mm-hmm. were teaching empathy. They were teaching consent. They were teaching um, what a healthy relationship is. And, and to us, the goal was again, <laughs> devices like ours won't even be needed. Um, we're, we're a B Corp, so we're a triple bottom line company. And we've always felt it was very important to look at the underlying core of the problem, but also think beyond profit. Going back to you know you know you talking about uh, empathy and trying to make people understand each other's perspectives and where they come from and hopefully that will lead to you know dialogue and better understanding a better world. Um, it's kind of you know the, the premise of this podcast as well, where I invite you know different uh, types of people from all walks of lives and let them tell their story. And I, you know, it, m- it might be naive, but I hope that this kind of contributes to you know, small steps in, in um, as I said, better understanding and make this world a little bit better. Um, I I think storytelling is mm, such a key component of empathy. So the work that you discuss, making sure that people's of different backgrounds mm-hmm. or stories are heard so people don't fall into the stereotypes or of what they read or what they see and really get to know someone as an individual and, and really see the the similarities we have um, and, and the more of them we have than differences. Yeah, exactly. Would you mind uh, me taking you back to, you know, the, the situation where you had to hide during the war? Okay, because, you know, the, sure. the reason I... I I want to ask a question to you about that is, <clears throat> yeah, before we started the podcast, I told you about my parents who were in a camp and experienced war as well. And uh, when I grew up, they had many stories about it. And the way they talked about it is actually, they made a lot of jokes always. And so, uh, you know, so that's the way they cope with it. So the most terrible situations and then they still, you know, kind of laugh. Um, in, in, yeah, trying to deal with it. Um, how is that with you? Because you have experienced so many things, and and uh, um, yeah, how do you deal with that in in your daily life now? Well, that's a good question. My my parents never really talked about it. We, I think, humor would have been a good way to diffuse the traumatic situation. We, I, I do remember my, my father being glued to the TV when we came back because we were hearing rumblings of something happening, but of course we didn't know what it was going to happen. I do remember the very first time I heard the siren, which meant, you know, run down to the bomb shelter and we lived in a high rise. And so 
just that fear of, you know, what could happen. I actually remember cleaning the bomb shelter with my mom before the war in anticipation, knowing that it Mm. might happen. And then after the first alarm, when we ran down, there was no space for us. And I remember looking up on my mom being like, but mom, we cleaned it. Don't we get Mm. to like go inside? (laughs) I I don't know why I remember that so vividly. Um, I remember the the grocery stores being all shut down. And then one day, all of a sudden, they were going to open for for two hours um, and standing in this really long line of women and the doors opening and everyone pushing each other to get in and my mom losing her shoe and her laughing about it mm. with the guard that was at the door. And we, you had a $10 limit of what you could buy to make sure there was enough for everyone. And I remember my mom getting formula from my baby brother and toilet paper and the cashier being like, really, this mm. is what you want to get, not food. <laughs> um, and then I remember things um, that are, you know, I don't want to remember. I remember saying goodbye to friends um, in the building. I remember my my um, best friend at the time, unfortunately, she didn't make it. Neither did her mom. Um, I would say that memory mm-hmm. I probably suppressed the most and, and most um, recently dealt mm-hmm. with in therapy a few years ago. Um, unfortunately, I did see her um, her car as they were trying to flee, oh. uh, get bombed. Um just very, very sad. Um, but yeah, and then and then I just I remember when they came into the shelter and I remember them telling us we had an hour to pack two bags and my, you know, us rushing upstairs and my mom, you know, fr- being frantic about we could only bring two bags for a family mm-hmm. of eight, no. which is not a lot. <laughs> and uh and my mom being like, Do you want this? Do you want this? And me just being like, Mom, it's okay, like we'll be back. Like just take, we you know what's needed. Like she, she was like, do you want your backpack? And I was like, no, just take what you need. And, um, and then being excited to be on a plane because mm-hmm. I'd never been on a plane before. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there's some memories that are very vivid for some reason. We just mm-hmm. don't speak about it as a family. Um, we do celebrate the day we came to the U S September okay. 21st every year. And we also, mm-hmm. I celebrate the day I became a U.S. citizen we watch the movie coming to America. <laughs> um, it's just a, it's a tradition. Um, but yeah, in terms of how I dealt with it, I guess now I think of it more so as, uh, I don't know how much background you saw on, I'm a very, very big advocate of the birth lottery. The birth lottery concept is really what drives me. It is my purpose. And to me, that is the, the idea of how we have no influence at all of, of our starting point. We don't choose to be what gender we are, sexuality we are, where we're born, our parents, uh, if we're poor mm-hmm. or rich or in between, our skin color. But all of all of them and each of them have such significant impact mm-hmm. on how our life will turn out. And that lottery, some people end up with a winning ticket or yeah. a ticket that's more likely to win. And some people end up with a ticket that's might never, might never win. Um, and so to me, I, I feel like it's, it's on us, especially those who cheated the birth lottery or won the birth lottery in many ways to provide access and equities mm. for those that did not. And so my North star is, is that birth lottery and the work that I do uh, has to do with addressing those inequities. And for me, I, I, my, my skills and backgrounds, I do it through mm-hmm. technology and education. 
um, if you would be asked to walk a hundred miles for the cause, which one would you do? I, I because I heard you say a couple of things that you're passionate about. Well, right now it would definitely mm -hmm. be to free Palestine. I mean, everything that's going on um, right now is so um, this is just terrible. It's it's um, it's hard to speak about, but it's painful to see the occupation, the colonization, the impact um, that it's having on the Palestinian people who are not recognized or treated as human beings. It is, there was a trend a few weeks ago where more of Western societies mm -hmm. were speaking about Palestine in a way that has not been done before. And that was very hopeful of that. Um, sad too, in a way, which I know is, is, hard to understand, sad that it, take, it took this long for people to speak about it um, in, in the way that they were. Um, but yeah, I would, right now, at this very moment, it would be to really continue to have people speaking about Palestine and, and not to forget what's going yeah. on. Have, have you been back? Um, yeah, I was invited yeah. by the government, actually. Um, which I was so unexpected. It was actually by a, a Jewish friend of mine referred me uh, and the government brought me out there mm. for a tech conference. So they, they paid for my trip. This was in late 2019. Very, it was very hard to get through the airport mm. in Tel Aviv. But once I did, I ended up not just doing the conference, but actually seeing aunts I haven't seen since I was a kid and meeting cousins mm. and uncles I've never met before. And uh, I mean, some of the most striking things I remember is a, I had mm -hmm. not spoken much Arabic and within a few days I was responding to them mm -hmm. and I didn't even know what I was saying, mm -hmm. but it was making sense. So just like how amazing the human brain is and in retaining um, information. And then just the, the walls that had been erected, there were different roads for Palestinians, mm -hmm. different roads for Israelis. It was just the segregation was, I mean, oh. I've did I had heard about it, I had read about it, but seeing it in real life was was quite mm -hmm. the jarring experience. And and then visiting Jerusalem and, and just how beautiful, beautiful, beautiful it is. And and because you were born in Kuwait, right? I was never in Palestine. Yeah, I was never okay. in Palestine when I when I was young. It's it's um, so my yeah. my citizenship is is really interesting. So my parents were born yeah. in Palestine, but were not mm -hmm. recognized as citizens because it was after okay. uh, 1948 when Israel um, invaded um, uh, the country. And basically, if you were Palestinian, you were not mm -hmm. given the right to citizenship. So Jordan, if it, Jordan decided to create access to for citizenship. And, and so my parents mm -hmm. had a Jordanian passport, even though they were born in Palestine. They moved to Kuwait. Kuwait has a very rigorous mm -hmm. citizenship uh, system. So to become a citizen, your parents have to be citizens. So because my parents were not Kuwaiti citizens, uh, I actually was born with a Jordanian, mm. Jordanian passport. And I have never been to Jordan okay. still to this day. So, um, and, then, and then I became a US citizen at 30 um, and, and had to relinquish that, that Jordan, Jordanian passport. But yeah, my where I was born, where I'm from, and where I am now, oh. very, very different. Oh.
Um, yeah, I, I want to take you, um, you know, to the present situation where the world is facing still this COVID-19. I think the U.S. government, the Biden administration is talking about building tech better. So that makes a lot of sense um, from my perspective. Um, now, knowing so much more, I, I add, I think it's time for a reset and a reimagine uh, because, you know, the reasons that we are facing this virus has to do with that we are that messed up our planet. Um, yeah, my question to you is what would that look like, a reset or a reimagine of this world, of our society? Oh, man, <laughs> what a loaded question. Um, what, what I'll say is, based on my background, my experience and my work, I am seeing that we are becoming more and more divided as a society. And what's interesting about that is we have more tools and more access uh, and, and better health than any other prior generation before us. So while there are so many things going for us, we seem to be looking at the world in a way of what am I missing or not having enough. And I guess to really hone in, one of the things I discovered at the beginning of war when we were working on the empathy education piece is empathy has been declining year after year for the last 20 years. That as technology has become more ubiquitous, uh, as we have shifted to living more in isolation, which is changing in the last year, uh, as we are reading less books, we are not relating to people not like us. And, and, and mm. empathy is, is growing. And that's very concerning. And we saw a lot of, of that in this past election presidency and even through COVID where people don't want to wear masks to protect other people. And, and it's about them mm. and, and not, not others. And I think, you know, if I think about like, what are the things that I wish I could give everyone or pass on to everyone and, and do a reset on, it is the empathy component. I, I, I wish it was taught in schools or more people thought about others and the impact that they have on our society, our community, our planet, and, and so on. And I think if we did, we would live in a better world. Yeah, so so I had a, a lot of worries. Uh, there are. Do you still see hope? Yeah, I, I especially the younger generation. I'm I'm so just enthralled with seeing how the, these younger. I'm gonna <laughs> sound so old, and <laughs> uh, it's just how they're using their voices, their platforms, social media, speaking up and demanding justice just in ways I had never seen before and, and really holding leaders accountable in a way I had never seen before. So the, the younger generation gives me a lot of hope that they'll change that status quo and make things better. Great. You know, my, my organization celebrates its 75th anniversary uh, 
this year. And so we're looking back and, you know, how did we do on certain issues? And uh, did we really do what we said we would do? Uh, one big topic um, is, is justice, you know, gender justice, racial justice. Yeah. If, you, if you look at, you know, the humanitarian sector um, as, as a whole, you know, from where you are sitting, um, do you think, um, you know, they've done a good job? Um, in the last 75 years or so since the Second World War on issues like uh, gender justice and racial justice? Oh, um, I don't know if I have enough information to answer that question. I, I think that it feels like from the experiences that I have with the nonprofits mm -hmm. that I sit on, that there is a lot of work being done on solving the symptom, not the problem. So it is, you know, putting a Band-Aid on something versus really fixing it. And my organization, Coded for Kids, um, the, again, I sit on the board of, is, is really focused on increasing diversity in technology, giving access to underserved communities, kids to, to learn technology, but really as a form of economic empowerment. These are usually brown and black kids who live in um, areas that don't get a lot of attention, that don't have a lot of resources. And the idea is that they are able to find a way to get out of that by learning, by, by, by education, um, and, and then being able to get a, to get income that allows them to be able to um, do more with, with the, again, the little resources that, that they have. And, and to me, that's solving the problem of, of you know, in a way, poverty, um, uh, technology access, because, and, and not just even technology access, but diversity in technology, because so much of our, of our products and our websites and our networks are built by, by one, you know, maybe male or you know white people <laughs> to be more frank and and don't, don't necessarily represent all of us don't have different perspectives taken into account you look at ai and how they don't recognize black people and and just it's um there's a lot of need and then a lot a lot of challenges are being addressed through coded by kids which which are phenomenal versus i look at where i live and the workplace development programs they have that are focused on creating jobs that make minimum wage um, or getting people jobs where they don't have opportunities for career advancement. Um, helping someone make $10, $12 an hour is not going to get them out of their situation. It's, it's, yes, it, it provides a little bit more maybe than what they have, but is it really enough to move the needle? And, and, and so that's what I see. And, and I, I, it would be great if there was more work focused on the underlying causes of the symptoms that are, I feel, being more solved than, than the latter or the former. Music is very important for me, so I always ask this um, as well. Is if I would ask you to mention a song or a piece of music uh, that embodies you for a big part, 
uh, which song or piece of music would that be? Well, I feel like as a company that is called Roar for Good, I have to say Katy Perry <laughs> Roar, but <laughs> um, there's a couple of songs that I, for yeah. some reason, always pop in my head. There is um, Dangerous mm-hmm. Minds by Coolio. I don't know why. I'll just be walking down the streets and I'll just start singing it. Or there's also, I don't know if you've heard of the band Fun. They have this song okay. called Carry On. Like it's a, like, mm-hmm. keep mm-hmm. going no matter how hard things are. And then there's another song that I really like called Unwritten. Natasha, I don't know her name, but she talks about how she doesn't like being defined okay. in one way, that there's still so mm-hmm. much more left to do and be. So I can't pick just one. Those okay. are the ones no, that come and, to mind. And I have more guests who kind of, quote unquote, cheated. So no, no problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and just to remind the listeners, so we have a, I, what I made is a, is a Spotify uh, song list with all the songs that are chosen by my uh, guests. So if you go to hashtag walk, talk, listen, uh, then that playlist should pop up and you uh, find classical Heavy metal, R&B, all kinds of, of songs. Oh, I didn't see that. It's cool. It's a cool idea. Do you have any message, uh, invitation, or question for the listener? It's always the same, which is to ponder your own birth lottery. A lot of people you have a very deep understanding of your parents and what they went through to come here and the sacrifices that they had to make and the difficult decisions that they had to make. And a lot of people don't necessarily have that same knowledge. And and I think that is a way to really appreciate the and be grateful for what you have today. So my invitation would be to consider your own birth lottery. And if you don't know that much about what your parents went through or what their grandparents or, you know, their parents went through to, to learn that history and um, to, as a result, look at immigrants and refugees and other people yeah. in, a, in a different way. Okay. Well, one last question that I, that I have for you is, is actually about Roar for Goods because the other, the first company that you came up with, ultimately you sold that one. Do you see that happening with this Roar for Good as well? Well, I have investors, and that's definitely what investors would want. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it depends. We did, we were hit hard by COVID Mm -hmm. last year, being in hospitality. And I think going into recovery centers, healthcare is going to be, um, especially because there's a huge need right now, is is, is going to drive us in a a more sustainable direction. But Mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I do think it's an option. I think what's important for us is that if it is, if, if there is any type of acquisition, that it's the right partner, that it's not someone that mm-hmm. is just looking for profit. Again, we're a certified B Corp. It's not just about money. It's about what we, it's about the planet, the people, and that alignment on the mission mm-hmm. and vision has to be there. Okay. No matter what happens. I, I would like to thank you for, for you know, sharing your story. Um, it's un- unbelievable. And, and the strength that you had to continue and then uh, became this power woman in terms of everything you do and, and not only, you know, a business for the sake of business, but the business for the sake of, you know, yeah, uh, contributing to make this world a little bit better. So I, I, uh, I applaud you so much for that. Uh, thanks 
for yeah who you are and what you do. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for having me. Thank you. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.